Hey guys, what's up? Drew here from The Anxious Truth, and today I have a special guest on today's episode. This is Dr. Marty Seif, who is speaking to us for all the way from Connecticut, I believe, and not too far from where I am. And uh, Dr. Seif, thank you so much for taking the time to participate today. Really, really appreciate it. Um, we're going to talk a lot about intrusive and unwanted and obsessive thoughts today. And uh, Marty, you want to give us a, a little bit of a background of where you come from in, in this particular area? Because it's impressive. Well, my name is Marty Seif. I'm a psychologist, and I've done a lot of work in anxiety disorders. I started a long, long time ago, partly to uh, try to uh, cure my own anxiety disorders. That's probably what put me originally in this field. But a very long time ago, it was helpful in starting an organization called, well, it was at one time called the Anxiety Disorder Association of America. Today it's called the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. I've been going for about 40 years. Um, I'm also on the faculty of New York Presbyterian Hospital. I used to be the um, associate director of the uh, White Plains Hospital Anxiety Center. And I spent a lot of time, certainly over the last five or ten years, writing books and also trying to understand the concept of kind of frightening, scary, sticky, intrusive thoughts. Okay. So if you want to ask some questions, that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as we were discussing, I mean, the podcast and the community surrounding it is very CBT and behaviorally cognitively focused in terms of attacking anxiety disorders. One of the biggest obstacles that I find in my travels and dealing with my listeners and the community surrounding the podcast is this topic of intrusive, unwanted, obsessive, scary kind of thoughts, um, either because they fuel the panic or they are the panic. They are the problem themselves. And people have a very difficult time understanding what the approach should be to, to deal with this. They try to distract. They try to stop the thoughts. They try to replace them. They try all the stuff that you see talked about on the Internet, and uh, they get really frustrated and scared because it doesn't really work. And in reading your book, and, and guys, I will link the book on my website and in the podcast description. You should definitely check it out. Um, you just go through such a huge amount of helpful strategy in terms of describing what this is all about. And, and what the, the overall gist of how to approach this should be. So the first thing that I kind of wanted to talk about was the fact that everybody has thoughts. Everybody has intrusive thoughts. I think that that's a super great point that you start with. Okay. You know, I'm going to talk a little bit about intrusive thoughts, but I also uh, just want to make some comments about your the introduction that you just made here. Because I just want to uh, make some sort of distinction that might be helpful to some people. You talk okay. – um, so everybody in some way gets who has any significant anxiety has thoughts that can make them very anxious. But I'd like to make a distinction and, and maybe your, your listeners can make a distinction between those thoughts, those thoughts that essentially are subsequent to the original whoosh of anxiety. So, for example, a person who has panic disorder, the primary trigger for people with panic disorder is some odd sensation somewhere in their body. Oh my God, am I, am I losing my mind? You know, there's something that goes on that feels very odd. There's a whoosh of anxiety, which I think most of your listeners can recognize. It's sort of like a, a kind of uncontrollable reaction. And then there are a bunch of what if thoughts these that, that, that are catastrophic and frightening. And in that case, these intrusive thoughts follow the surge of anxiety. Okay, and that's typical in what we would call things like panic disorder and a lot of the anxiety disorders. Obsessive right. fears are different. 
obsessive fears are that the thought is the original trigger. So a person could be sitting around not feeling anything and have the thought, what if <gasps> this thought, the thought fig triggers the fear and then the thought in some way gets stuck and it, it causes a great deal of distress. And then people figure out, try to figure out some ways of getting away from it. And we can talk more about that. So, but that's the first thing I want. I want to make that distinction between the panic attacks and the, 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 the and the, uh, the panic episodes on one hand and the obsessive fears on the other. It's, it, I find it a helpful way to make a distinction. The second aspect is very picky and, and I, pardon me for doing this, but you said you use the term, how do you attack anxiety disorders? The fact is we don't attack anxiety disorders because right. everything with anxiety, think of effort working backwards. You attack it, it'll put it'll attack you back harder. So part of the big part of what we're talking about, not just techniques, we'll get into techniques, but the major aspect that anyone needs to understand when they're grappling with any sort of anxiety disorder, certainly with unwanted intrusive thoughts, is the fact that effort works backwards. And in fact and in fact if you're attacking your anxiety disorder, I know it's just a figure of terms, but I'm being very picky. And if I can, if I can be picky with my patients, I can be picky with you also. <laughs> the fact is that attacking anxiety disorders is going the wrong way on the on the one way street. What you, it's it's actually accepting and allowing anxiety disorders. I mean, there's more to it than that, but that's the attitude shift that we're asking. Okay, absolutely. So let me go back yeah. to your original original. So now that I've sort of muddy the waters let me just go back to your original thing the fact is that everyone virtually everyone i mean everyone who admits to it uh has some sort of what are called passing intrusive thoughts and those are thoughts that essentially seem to come out of the blue fly into your consciousness have often a kind of startling or humorous or naughty effect on you in some way and essentially then fly away and those are those are common. Everyone has them. So, for example, I'm driving a car. I'm waiting at a stop sign. I'm in my car, and this very sweet-looking little old lady is sort of very slowly walking across the street, and I'm waiting for her to get there. And I'm thinking, you know, I could just put my foot on the gas pedal, drive <laughs> past that. Whoops! Oh, that's terrible. Okay, and then I don't think about it again. Or I, you know, I often work in Manhattan. There's a subway system in Manhattan. You go on a train. Train's coming in. There's someone standing a little close to the thing. You say, you know, if I wanted, I could sort of push that person on the line. And and they they tend to be. And you say, oh, that's terrible. And then you don't you don't think about it. Those are common, ordinary, typical. However, sometimes for people who what I call quote unquote have a sticky mind, and I'll I'll talk about that if you if you if you're interested. For people who have a sticky mind, and most Probably a lot of people who are coping or grappling with significant anxiety understand what it means to have a sticky mind. Um, those people, the thought doesn't become a passing thought because what happens is that the thought is looked at and a person says, wait a second, that's terrible. How, how can I do that? I don't want to think of my... They, they, they somehow have some misbelief about what thoughts mean about themselves or about their capacity to do things. And they say, wait a second. I don't want to have that thought again because maybe it means that I'm a person who would push someone onto the tracks. Maybe I'm a murderer or something. Anyway, sometimes these thoughts trigger some sense of caution. And now I'm going to back up a bit because the fact is that our consciousness is very broadband. At any given time, anyone who's listening to this podcast will, will be processing 
the temperature, whether they're thirsty, whether they're hungry, whether they have to go to the bathroom, whether the part of their body hurts, whether or not they should listen to this, is this worthwhile listening to this, or should I go someplace else, should I turn it off, and what am I going to do later on today, and did I sleep well last night? There's so much going on in our consciousness. I don't even like to think of the term stream of consciousness. I like to use the term, it's a torrent of consciousness that's going on at any given time. And, any, and yet, we're only aware of very few, people say anywhere between three to seven different elements at any given time. So all these different things that are sort of in our awareness, or potentially in our awareness, we, we inadvertently, or we choose. What do we choose? We choose things that we somehow rep recognize to us as a threat. And if a thought feels like, wait a second, I don't want to have that thought again, we kind of put it on a watch list. And if that thought shows up again, it triggers a threat. And we say, wait a second, I don't want to have that thought. So we begin to try to push that thought away. Why? Because we mistakenly believe that having a thought represents something about who we are and the sort of person we are. As a result, whenever we tell ourselves not to have a thought, you know what's going to happen. If I say yeah. to you, Listen, Drew, whatever you do, don't think about pink elephants. Okay, You can have any thought you want, but don't think about pink elephants. The fact is that's going to increase the chances of you thinking about pink elephants. And if I say to you, Drew, I know where your family lives, and I have a machine that knows. If you think about pink elephants, I'm going to harm everyone who you love. Okay, There is zero chance that you're not going to think of pink elephants. The more important it is not to think about it, the, more, the less the probability that you actually are able to do that. This is something called the ironic effect that was studied by a fellow named Wegner in the 80s and 90s. He did a lot of publications about it. And so, in effect, an attempt to, again, this is a, a, an earl, an, another example of effort working backwards, in the attempt not to have the thought, and why don't you want to have the thought? Because you feel that the thought, the content of the thought represents something that is opposite to the values that you believe in. Okay? <laughs> So if you believe, then you say, if it, I don't want to have that thought. All of a sudden, the thought starts popping up. It comes up more. It feels stuck. And you become, you get caught in this battle of trying to stop something, which uh, is essentially you're putting a lot of effort in the wrong direction. Right. What this means really is that, now let me tell you, you need to think more. Unwanted intrusive thoughts often have terrible content. Not always. But they often have terrible content. So typical examples are the idea of hurting someone, robbing people, various types of um, sexual molestation, um, being blasphemous, yelling out blasphemies in church, um, basically doing things that violate the sense of your own personal feeling of decency. And the fact is that people then start to think, wait a second. I'm having this thought frequently. Does that mean that I could do this? Here's another thing that happens, which I'll wait later. The thought starts to trigger this emergency response. It's, it's experienced as a whoosh. When we experience this whoosh, it basically, our amygdala, our alarm system is fired. We sort of go to what I call, what my co-author and I, I should mention my co-author, Dr. Sally Winston, who is probably the brains of the, of the duo of the brains of, a, of, of us, um, we call uh, an altered state of consciousness that we call anxious thinking. I'll talk about anxious thinking in a while, but really it's in more in, in some anxious thinking starts to make the thought 
feel like an impulse. And so it's not only that you're having the thought, but you're actually saying, wait a second, could I actually do these things? Am I, do I have to control myself? Could I actually push someone over the track? Could I actually mow down that little old lady walking across the street? Could I actually molest a child? Could I actually go into church and yell, um, you know, yell some blasphemy in some way? But the important point to realize is that the content of the intrusive thought, not what the person, not anything about the person, but the opposite about the person. It represents the thing that the person feels most un, most is most different than how they um, assess themselves and how and the values that they have. So the person who values gentleness kindness is the person who paradoxically seemingly or ironic whatever term you want to use is the person who has intrusive thoughts about violence okay mm. the person who loves children is the person who has these intrusive thoughts about child molestation the you know dr winston sally winston is often fond of saying she's seen many people who uh have concerns about yelling blasphemies in church but only those people in which religion is very important to them have this. She has never seen an atheist who's been concerned about intrusive thoughts about yelling blasphemies. Okay, <laughs> why? Because it's not in a, it's not a value to them that make that they they're going to have to try to push away in some way. Right. So I don't know how well I've done it, but I've tried to outline briefly the transition from a normal passing intrusive thought all the way to the point where it becomes a stuck, intrude, unwanted intrusive thought that begins to feel like an impulse. And when yeah. people start to feel, when it starts to feel like an impulse, people really get frightened and they suffer in silence, okay? They do suffer in silence, partly, partly because the content, usually because the content is so bizarre. They're afraid to Which help. Makes I'm yeah. sorry, say it again? No, I said that, that does make sense. They never want to talk about it. They rarely want to say what the thoughts are. Rarely. Right, because they're thinking that the per because if, if you're not trained about uh, and, and understanding what these are, then a typical therapist will say, well, tell me, is, is this something that you have impulsive to you? Are you angry? I mean, there are so many, um, well, that goes into treatment. But the, right. the point is that one of the, one of the things that people have to learn about these intrusive thoughts is that, and this is sort of bizarre, is that the content of the intrusive thought is really irrelevant. The con I've had people seeing me who've had intrusive thoughts, I've, and I've seen them for an extended period of time working with them, and I've never known specifically what their intrusive thought is. It's not important to me, okay? The important aspect of an intrusive thought is that, number one, it's stuck. Number two, it repeats, and number three, it causes great distress. Okay. I think you've done an excellent job of of, of getting of, of building up. Thank you so much. I think one of the things that people run into is there's two things that sort of add up. Number one is that they are surrounded continuously by the message, especially sort of in the self-help community, if you will, that you must honor yourself, it's self-love, it's self-honor, and that leads them down the path of my thoughts are sacred and serious and must be honored, and if I think it, therefore it is true, and it runs almost counter to the idea of 
just accepting this as an irrelevant thought as opposed to fighting it. They, well, they really have a hard time like gra grappling with that. Like, well, what do you mean I don't have – I, I say all the time, you're not required to follow every thought you have. And that turns well, into a revolution, no, revolution no, for me. It's the, it's the opposite of that, Jerry. Let me right. tell you right. First of all, right. you know, first of all um, you know, our brain is not as smart as we think it is. That's the first thing. <laughs> and our brain – you know, what's that old saying? The brain is a uh, good servant, but a poor master. Um, yeah. Maybe the mind. Uh, look, the, the fact is that our mind is very capable of creating junk thoughts. Okay? It happens all the time. And, the, and, and, and sometimes we're startled by the thoughts that we have. So the con I, I think that, the, you know, part of the things that we outline in this in this book, Sally and I outline this book, and I'm, I'm not really pushing the book, but we do have a chapter where we outline the nine major myths about thoughts that contribute to unwanted intrusive thoughts. And the fact is that people have these misunderstandings about what thoughts are and what they mean. And the fact is, I'm not sure about this health help people who, who say, if you think it, you what's what's the there was something you well, said that sort of struck what, what and what I've been what I've heard several times I've heard phrases and again I, I don't know the validity of this sort of veracity of this but phrases like emotional reasoning if I think it it must be true or that you must honor your thoughts you must honor your feelings they have a hard time understanding that the concept of thinking if if I think it it must be true is a classic thinking error right i, I just I you, that's, that, so no i don't think anyone responsible would say if i think as a matter of fact no, no, wait let me clarify that for a second let me just clarify that for a second it's not that they're necessarily being told that if you think it it is true they're being told that they must honor themselves and it leads them into the path of saying well my thoughts are myself so how are you telling me that i must invalidate my thoughts that's what i run into uh, the ability to, to recognize, like, hey, our brains are perfectly capable of producing junk, like you said, is almost dehumanizing to some people. They they, re they resist that at well, first. Well, yeah, I'm sorry, but that's actually – that's just a, that's a fact. But but the idea of honoring yeah. yourself – but the concept of thoughts, I don't know, you know, is the concept of thoughts really for most of us and for all of us, you know, most of the time, I should say, is that thoughts are a way of rehearsing something with no consequences in reality. So I can imagine what it'd be like to punch someone in the face. I could imagine what it's like to uh, try to get into a fight with someone. I can imagine all these different things without any consequences in reality because I know, and most of your listeners know, okay, that on one side of the room is thoughts and on the other side of the room is action, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, the fact is that when our when our amygdala is triggered, this alarm system goes off, this freeze, flight, flight response, which I'm sure you've talked about in other podcasts, goes on. There is a, a kind of distortion of reality that goes on. And one of the primary distortions of reality is that the difference between thought and action starts to change in some way. And so people, let me tell you something, people start out, people who have intrusive thoughts, a lot of them start to think, wait a second. This isn't just a thought. This is an impulse. I could do it. If I don't control myself, if I don't watch myself, if I'm not careful with myself, I could actually go yell this thing out. Listen, I have a patient who's afraid to fly because she's afraid that she's going to get on a plane and yell, um, 
I'm a I'm a terrorist. Okay. Mm. Now, so this little now, and she feels that that would be uh, um. So she, listen, I you know reassurance doesn't work because but we'll we'll get into that. But the real point is that um, th- if you, this is this is a very low probability event for this to happen. There are people. Right. Who are afraid that somehow they're going to get anxious and take their clothes off, or they're going to somehow get anxious and poke little kids' eyes out or something. These thoughts start to feel like impulses, and most of the time, people have to be have to explain. I have to explain to them that intrusive thoughts are the opposite of impulses. They're really, they might, and that in a sense, with a lot of anxiety disorders, you really can't trust your feelings. Anxiety is a bluff, is a bluffing emotion. It tells you the wrong messages. It tells you that you're in danger when you're really safe, okay? And that's what anxiety does. And you have, you know, when you're growing up, you're told you have to learn to trust your emotions. It's true, but not with anxiety. With anxiety, yes. you have to do the opposite. You have to do the opposite. It's like that Seinfeld episode with George. Yes, Bush. I have a whole episode on that. Yes, <laughs> George the opposite. Episode. His life is great. He got the girl, he got the job, he got everything he wanted. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, where were so, we? No, and I think your explanations are so spot on. This is going to help a tremendous number of people. So, let's move on to the idea that it's not about stopping. You know, we talk about often, the topic comes up of, you know, thought stopping does not work. You know, thought redirecting does not work. So the general strategy here, like you said in the beginning, is never an attack. It's an acceptance and an, and an understanding of what it really is, just letting it come. Right. And, and let me let me add to that. Okay, so the fact is, I just want to give background. Uh, unwanted intrusive thoughts, probably the majority of people, no one's ever done a really good study, but probably the majority of people have unwanted intrusive thoughts. Maybe the significant majority of people are people who have some form of obsessive fear or maybe even obsessive compulsive disorder. But there mm-hmm. are people who are depressed, people with PTSD, people who have, or, or somehow, even if they don't have PTSD, they, they have some sort of traumatic past, um, which, and, and they also have intrusive thoughts. But, but so I, I, want, I want it to be inclusive. I mean, the concept of intrusive thought is, is really kind of um, uh, cross-classification. But if we're talking about the major, probably the, vast, the greater majority of people with intrusive thoughts have some sort of obsessive compulsive disorder. I don't know if they actually meet criteria, meaning whether it's severe enough, but they can identify that in some way. So really what happens is that if you have, an, technically, an unwanted intrusive thought is an obsession. It's a thought that scares you or makes you distressed or causes distress, okay, and seems to be uncontrollable in some way. It comes about. Now, the fact is that people started to realize years ago that the engine that drives these obsessions, believe it or not, is the compulsion. Okay, so you know, if you if you think, oh my goodness, I touched something dirty, my hands are, are dirty, and then I have to clean them. It gives you a bit of relief, but the fact, you know, actually washing them, compulsively washing them gives you relief, but that compulsion, that washing is actually the engine that drives the next compulsion. So, in fact, if you want to sort of stop obsessive fears, you really can't do much about a thought that pops into your head. Why? Because you can't stop a thought. That's the ironic effect. So, if you're basically going to say, so the concept of exposure and response prevention was created, which says, listen, Stop the compulsion. Stop the compulsion. Mm-hmm. That's basically going to start to take 
empty the gasoline tank in this obsessive compulsive cycle that goes on. And even if you don't have OCD, you can think of pe- people who people have a sticky mind. They have a looping mind. Things get stuck in their mind, go around and around. Worry warts are like that. They can identify with that. So here's the point. The problem is that if you if you work with people who have uh, OCD enough, you realize that a person can actually stop washing and still get relief. And how do they get relief? They think of the fact that as soon as they leave your blankety blank office where you're making them stop washing, they're going to go home and jump in the shower for the next half hour. Okay. So the fact is that thoughts can actually be compulsions also. And then we get to the idea, well, wait a second, how do we stop a person from having, we, we can't stop a person from having obsessive thought, we can't stop a person from having a compulsive thought, we're stuck, what do we do? And so what we have sort of said, the way to begin to deal with these things, to essentially turn off the engine, okay, that which is a compulsion that drives the next obsession, in this case the intrusive thought, is more than anything have a massive change of attitude. And the attitude is, wait a second, when the thought comes, what you're going to try to do is essentially just let it be. In any anxiety disorder, when you feel anxious, the best thing to do, and also the hardest thing to do, is nothing. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> okay. So, the, the issue there becomes, how do you do nothing? But first, it's an attitude that says, wait a second. We're not fighting the anxiety, we're letting it be. We're not pushing it away, we're just, you know, I tell people, set a place for it at the table, okay? Okay, leave a place open, not at the main table, maybe at the children's table. You don't have to interact with it, but just let it be. Because if you yeah. try to push it out, it's gonna force its way back in. And what you're gonna do during that time. A metaphor that I that I like to use, um, probably use pretty often by now is, Think of these thoughts as bullies, okay? And your job with a bully is to, in some way, let's say you're, let's say you park your car out the end of the street, and you're, and it's dark at night. You're walking to your car, and some, buzzy, some uh, skizzy guy comes and passes you, and sort of says something kind of gross and disgusting and insulting as you walk by. What do you do, okay? Basically, what you really should do, you know, if you're, most people would feel somewhat threatened, they feel somewhat frightened, but they'd also know you don't turn around and say, hey, what are, you guys, what are you talking about? No, you keep on walking. You act as if you don't want to interact because that gives you the greatest chance of going on. Any way that you acknowledge this bully, this bully it increases the chance that the bully is going to ramp up his unpleasant yeah. actions towards you. Yeah. And that's the way I would like you, people to begin to treat their intrusive thoughts. It means not engaging with it. It means not paying attention to the content. It's a difficult thing to do, but there are ways to do that. It means saying, wait, this is a bully thought. This is a scary thought. This is, an, this is, this is a persistent thought. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, all I'm doing here is naming two things. I'm saying it's a thought. It's important for people to remember it's a thought. And secondly, it's important to not to engage with the content of the thought. As soon as you engage the thought, as soon as you say, where did that thought come? You're engaging with the content. As as soon as you're saying, why am I having that thought now? You're engaging the content. 
as soon as you're saying, I better think something else, you're engaging with the content. You're, you're essentially, when you say, I should think something else, you're implicitly stating that the thought needs to be run away from, okay? And what I'm saying is that I'd like you to understand that thoughts are just thoughts and mm -hmm. that some inadvertent trigger, some in, inadvertent conditioning history that has resulted in this thought triggering this false alarm response and the way to learn to recover from these intrusive thoughts is to be less and less reactive to the trigger of the thought. Not yes. that there's a way of removing the thought. Okay. So Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. This is an excellent, excellent, excellent explanation. I want to touch, I, I could talk about this stuff for hours with you, but we're getting up in around 30 minutes. We'll try and keep it to 40 at the most. I want to go over one more thing before I let you go, and that is you touch in the book about the whole root cause thing. And I, I do encounter a fair number of people that spend a lot of time, and I, I don't really want to rain on anyone else's therapeutic or interventional parade. There are different paradigms, I understand. But many people suffer for a long time with this particular problem, and they're, they're continually led down that you must resolve the root cause. And I, I literally jumped out of my chair when I read what you wrote about that, what you and Dr. Winston wrote about that, especially when you say, we now know that determining the historical factors that contribute to unwanted intrusive thoughts are absolutely no help in getting rid of them. And I think that's such a key point for people to hear. And I always, I, I think, you know, we all carry baggage and, and issues that need to be addressed in our lives, but, but often that root cause is held up as a panacea. If you just find where the cause was when you're seven years old, this will all go away. And that never seems to work. So, you know, is that something that you can touch on for, for a minute or two? Do you have any, any I, I mean, you, you laid out in the book very nicely, but well, any other thoughts? I, I think this is, this was an issue that was, this is a, 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 a kind of article of faith about in a, a psychotherapy that was held for a long time. And mm -hmm. at times it became very, um, it, 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 initially it was sort of, you know, written in stone. Um, as people started uh, sort of developing other models of therapy, they started realizing that, uh, and they started acknowledging the fact that there were certain um, modalities that weren't particularly helpful uh, in uh, helping people who had certain significant anxiety disorders, certainly obsessive disorders. And in fact, when 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 you start to look closely at it, at what goes on, in fact, um, it. it very little evidence to suggest that there is any root courts co cause with things, which can be very unsatisfying for people. But, yeah. but even an even bigger problem is that sometimes, and we use the term co-compulsing, co Dr. Winston, Dr. Sally Winston and I use this term co-compulsing. Sometimes what happens is that there is an apparent resolution of some issue that seems to be contributing to the cause. There's an, there's an, there is a, uh, a brief, but, uh, there's a, there's an initial feeling of relief. Okay, good. I got it in some way. And then the patient comes back and, and they feel better for a while. And then the issue comes back again, either in that form or some other way. Maybe we didn't pay attention to this. I, you know, maybe you didn't understand this. The fact is that in fact, that resolution could actually be a compulsion and provides immediate relief, which then reinforces the next obsession in some way. So in some ways, it's counterproductive. But don't get me wrong. I'm not 
I'm not against um, either any kind of psychotherapy that looks at history, looks like looks at dynamics, looks at feelings, looks at conflicts. I'm just saying that that should be done after the major issue with the anxiety is pretty much resolved in some way. So it would be the secondary form of treatment. It would be important yeah. to know what sort of issues you're particularly sensitive to. It's important to know about your background and what kind of dynamics tend to exacerbate these things. But the concept of a root cause is, I think, along many types of psychotherapy, um, not intensely accepted today. I think there's a lot of skepticism about it. We, we address the issue in great length in our first book, which is a textbook um, uh, called What Every Therapist Needs to Know About uh, Anxiety Disorders. And, and that book is more technical, but it goes into great length. We really spend a lot of time exploring the various theories about that and try to explain yeah. the limits of that. Very helpful. So, I, like I said, we could talk about this for hours, but I don't want to take too much of your time. I, I appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to add? I, I will make sure people can get to your website, which is drmartinsife.com. I will link that over to the book. Um, would you would you um, let them know about the website, the Anxiety Depression Association of America? Absolutely. I will link that also. Just go to my website, theanxiousdepression.com. I will have all of those links there. Okay, great. Good. I just wanted Very to good. Very good. And as always, for those of you listening, if you have questions or comments, by all means, add them. I will do my best to answer them as best I can. And um, Dr. Saif, I will issue an open invite if you ever want to do this again. You're certainly welcome here anytime, but I am respectful of your time, so I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to do that. Thank but, you. Uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. But, but thank you so much for taking the time now. I appreciate it, and um, hopefully we'll talk again at some point. Take care. Somebody told me that you do or die. But I believe all you can do is try And as the city stands ten stories high I'm gonna live my life It's all around you, you can breathe it in And this is where your story begins You got the feeling that you're gonna win